Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me, producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a lot of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchase is made through our links. Give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We covered a lot of great movies that were adapted from other material in Season 10. Our Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals is where listeners can purchase the source material behind all our adapted film discussions. It helps support the show at no extra cost when you buy through our links. In our foreign language Best Picture nominees series, we looked at several adaptations, including Z, The Postman Il Postino, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and Letters from Iwo Jima. We hit the high seas with In the Heart of the Sea from Nathaniel Philbrick's nonfiction book for our Aquatic Killers series. Eh, definitely a weaker entry in that series. I bet the book is better. Oh, me too. Member bonus episodes featured adaptations like Gone Girl, The Russia House, Ivanhoe, The Hot Rock, The Big Heat, and Naked Lunch. Oliver Stone brought not just original stories, but also adaptations like Conan the Barbarian, Scarface, Year of the Dragon, Eight Million Ways to Die, Talk Radio, and Born on the Fourth of July. Mary Heron's disturbingly insightful American Psycho was adapted from the Brett Easton Ellis book. You like Huey Lewis in the news? Oh my god, it even has a watermark. And of course, more Stephen King with The Mist, The Green Mile, and The Shawshank Redemption for our King a la Darabont series. Find links to all of these books and more adapted films on our Originals page. That's thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports our show. Get the full list of books that we've talked about and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends... Our conversation begins. Scarface is over. It's time to tell the truth, even when we lie. Okay, so what do you call yourself? Huh? Como se llama? 
Antonio Montana. And you? What you call yourself? Where'd you learn to speak the English, Tony? Uh, in a school. And my father, he was uh, from the United States. Just like you, you know. He was a Yankee. Uh, he used to take me a lot to the movies, you know. I learned. I watched the guys like uh, Humphrey Bogart. They scared me. They, they teach me to talk. I like those guys. I always know one day I'm coming here, United States. 
All right, Andy, here we are. Oliver Stone's origin story. <laughs> number three on the list, Scarface. Certainly seems like a little bit of an origin story as far as the uh, cocaine habits <laughs> of the people. Yeah, I remember there was a movie that just lays out Oliver Stone's career. It's Scarface right, right here. Yeah. Did you read any of the backstories of him doing his research? I should say his quote research, like going going down to South America with drug lords and you know using coke and uh, just like hmm, I don't know if I'm completely yeah. safe at this particular point in my life. <laughs> it wasn't so much. I mean, I okay. So I, I think he actually covered the the business aspect in the movie of of this thing. Like if you're just if you're a businessman, you're doing business. It's all about businessman, and they use business all the time when they're talking in Bolivia. I, I what I got back to is you know talking about all of the violence in in Miami and that Oliver Stone is trucking around and that chainsaw scene. He's like hanging around with police who are investigating people who do that to each other. <laughs> this is not why are you doing this? It's a movie, man. It's a movie. It's okay to make it up. You don't have to put yourself in the chainsaw bathtub. It's one of those things. And, you know, as as somebody who has written scripts, I do really appreciate the idea of really getting in there and learning how it oh, works and everything. And, you know, I've done. You know, I did a, a ride along with Border Patrol for research before. And, you know, you, you start doing these things where you really start getting a sense of their world so that it can really you can help with that whole world building. We talk about world building all the time. And I, I appreciate that Oliver Stone was really not just ripping these stories from the headlines, but really, you know, exploring the all the the details of them. Uh, through and through. Uh, but yeah, it's just, I, I feel like, and you know, I don't think that it's not like his cocaine habit came from this movie. It's not like he did his research and ended up. A oh head. no, he nurtured <laughs> right. that cocaine habit well earlier. Yes, yes. <laughs> and actually I read, you know, during the course of this, he actually started realizing how much of a problem he had. And he, it was never like a problem where he was losing himself. It was just something that he would use, but he felt that he was uh, creatively, like everything was kind of diminishing because of his usage. And so I don't know if it was during the process of writing or afterward, but he and his wife, they actually moved to Paris so that he could get out of the kind of his Coke scene that he was in and get clean and just kind of start anew. So, so in the end, I guess it's a positive thing. One of the interviews he said, he said specifically, I, I'm, I was, I was using heavily during the research, to begin writing, I yeah. moved to Paris. So it sounds like he really separated those pieces, which means yeah. this is actually kind of a rehab movie, right? Like he's he was in in like serious recovery um, uh, while writing this movie, which uh, I don't know if that makes it different for well, you. And I think what's interesting is I think that this does speak to this type of story as an anti-drug film or like The Wolf of Wall Street as as a, a view of what comes of that lifestyle, right? There are these filmmakers who make these stories of excess in particular worlds and how detrimental it can be to the people who are in that particular world. And a lot of people were very upset with this film when it came out. In fact, we can talk about the X rating at some point, how it got this X rating and how De Palma and team actually brought real 
like people from the drug world and police to the MPAA. They actually did a test testimony there about the rating and the, they're saying this is real. This is what's really happening. And so this is depicting a truth here. And, and they, and they all saw this as an anti drug film, but it, I think people can get very lost in this type of story or any of those films about people in the world of access with these things and start seeing the, you know, the, the draw to power that you get. And, you know, when, when Tony is saying, you know, I want what's coming to the, to me, the world and everything in it, you can kind of start, uh, you know, wanting that same thing. And that's, that's where the danger lies. Well, right, because this movie, I mean, this is an American dream movie, right? This yeah. is a guy who comes from uh, outside of America to achieve, you know, everything that he has, like the storybook version of the American dream. And to him, that is, you know, that's achieved through acquisition of power and crime. And, um, and, and then it's a movie. Uh, about what happens when you don't know what to do with it. Like you achieve it and you don't, you, there's nothing left for you. Like you, you have no soul, no, no sort of, uh, you're rudderless and it, it begets just more greed. Um, and so, so there it is. And I, I you know, I, I think in, in that regard, if we go by the, the old Ebert standard, like how well does the movie succeed as, at what it is setting out to do? I think it succeeds. It does succeed. It absolutely succeeds. I think the filmmakers, the storytellers, the performers, everybody was making a story about excess and really kind of the dangers of pushing for that. And I don't think that I've paid attention to this little uh, conversation that Lopez has with uh, with Montana until I mean, I always knew it was there, but I really like I was like, oh, OK, that's that's it right there in a nutshell. When Lopez is talking to him about this idea of this, you know, chasser, this, mm -hmm. you know, this because they're looking across the the Babylon in an early point in the film at this this guy who's across the way. He's as Lopez tells him, he's the most uh, he's the richest man in the room, and he always wants more. And the the chaser, which is a Yiddish slang for kind of like the pig who has everything he wants but always wants more, and, and just it is never satisfied. And I was like, this that really sums it up. It's it's this idea of that insatiable greed that you just keep wanting more, and when you get it, you still want more than that. And and I think that is you know to a certain extent, the danger of the American dream when you're, when you want more and then you keep wanting more, you get it. What do you do? You want more than that. And it mm -hmm. just, it's this snowball effect that makes you never a happy person. Uh, Al Pacino talks about his approach to this character of Tony Montana. He said it was like, it, the, and the way you, when you watch him talk about it, he uses his hands a lot, right? And so he says, I just, I approach the character like this and he holds up his hand and slaps the back of one hand and then the front of the other hand. And the indication I think that he's making is that it's binary, right? This is this character who's, who's just like one dimensional and it's just acquisition moving forward and and i think that might be where uh, where i have issues with the film as a gangster film that uh, that that he really he does not contain multitudes he can maybe it's more than one dimension i mean we certainly have to talk about his relationship with the women in this film uh particularly his sister but other than that it's it's a bit of a 3 hour slog through one note pacino <laughs> 
Very much. Very much. It's, it's, um, I mean, he lives the role. He fully inhabits every aspect yeah. of this character with his obsessions and his greed for more. And also his, uh, you know, he, he also has this strange obsession with his sister and this idea of like, you know, ownership almost. And, and he won't let her have anything if it's not controlled by him. And it's just, it's such a strange way that he has about him that is really shocking and horrifying. And it does end up coming across very one note because there's just never anything likable about this character. Yeah. Have you seen the original Scarface? I did. I actually watched it uh, in preparation for this. I had never seen it before. And so I'd always heard it was um, essentially a very you know, a very solid adaptation, or this is a solid adaptation of that, albeit in a totally different time place. Uh, the original was inspired by Al Capone, set in Chicago. Uh, this one is obviously they've moved it to Miami in the uh, right at the in the 1980s and kind of took a different tact. But it's very, very similar. And to that end, I feel somewhat the same about the two films. But I will say the benefit of that particular version is it's half the running running time of this yeah, one. Right. And there's something right. to be and said for out. that. Yeah. I yeah. think it's interesting. This the and I really love the pivot that he made that Oliver Stone chose to make when writing this. Making yeah. it a, a more sort of non-traditional gangster movie. Uh, that that turns into a traditional gangster movie but but the the opening sequence set the stage with everything i think that oliver stone needed to say like in the first 5 minutes it's that close up on al pacino's face that is fantastic right no big establishing shots like we just we just are in an interrogation with al pacino and some immigration police as he gets as he gets off the boat after i should say the montage of news reports of Cuba, cubans coming over and and uh, the the political statement so the entire like opening 5 minutes of the movie is oliver stone's political stance on cuban refugees coming over and uh, a high percentage of them being quote criminals released from the prison system and what does that stand for for uh, the america that we knew in the early 80s and i really love the setting i love the cultural pivot i think it was a great idea to to tell this gangster story in a way that we've never we, we've never really seen right because it was so current it was taking like ripped from the headlines stuff and people didn't know, like you were, you said the 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 censorship of the MPAA board. They, I mean, their case was you're saying the f word way too many times per minute, and also the clown gets you shoot a clown, and like those kinds of things. And the shower scene, yeah, the, the shower scene, the shower, right, yeah. right, and the shower scene. So, like, what what they come back and say is like, this is what's going on in your country. Let's tell that story. Let's use like this vision of art to tell this story. I really like a lot of that. Um, and, and I like, I, I like those choices and the setup early on. And I think so much of the credit of, of like what appeals to me about this movie is in Stone's, uh, really kind of frivolous dialogue. Like it's just great. There's some wonderful one liners. There's some, I mean, it really is great. Stuff. There's a reason it's so often quoted. Uh, the political stance of the movie, which I think is fascinating. And then choices made with the script that just sort of cause it to unravel into a parade of violence that, that I'm, I don't 
I just don't, I, I don't know. I mean, it's just like, it becomes too long. It's just way too long. Everything fits in the world. It's just, it, yeah. it is a, it is a very big film and it's interesting. I don't know. I guess I find it interesting to see how things, how things shift and how things are played out. And I, I don't dislike the film. I just feel like there's a lot of it. There's just a lot of this movie. And I really have to be mentally ready to jump into this world again. I think it's totally fair to, to say that. I, I would compare it. Like, let's compare it to a movie like, uh, well, like The Godfather, right? Um, or uh, Casino, right? These other, like, big gangster movies, mm-hmm. right? That deal with organized crime, drug, even drug movies. I mean, pick your favorite drug movie. What is it about the character <laughs> of Tony Montana that I find less compelling and more exhausting in this in this movie, right? Because that's really it. I can handle the violence and the language and all of that stuff as this character degrades over the course of three hours with him. I'm exhausted by it in a way that I'm not exhausted by Casino. And it's a very similar arc. What is the difference there? I mean, do you do you agree with me? Am I crazy? No, I, I I don't think you are. I, I think it's the the fact that you know, I, I I don't. You're not necessarily finding the save the cat moments with the protagonists in those particular films, but they are protagonists who are easier to connect with. I certainly think that's the case in The Godfather, where. Michael didn't necessarily want that world and and he was a much more positive character uh, in the in the start of that film and only through the course of it does he get sucked into that world and and that's why that film has such a a dark ending as you see him kind of take on the mantle of uh, the godfather and 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 kind of make that change it's a it's a very very dark story as we watch his his yeah. switch in there and you know, I, I, I mean, I can't speak to Casino because honestly, I just haven't seen it in such a long time. Um, but even something like Goodfellas, I'll say that one instead. You know, I, I feel like there are really compelling characters that we were really enjoying, and there's a lot of a lot of life to them. And you know, I, I'll say, I mean, it could just be us, right? Because I mean, Scarface is a much beloved film. There yeah. are a lot of people who love this film. It's just for me. I think Tony Montana just doesn't have anything fun or. Uh, he's just, he's not someone I can connect to because he's just, he has such a drive to, to get everything. Yeah. And then he gets everything like midway through. And then it's just, you know, you see what the result of that is. You, and that's you said really the, what that film is. Yeah. No, you totally said it and you got it. And I figured it out. I figured it out. And the comparison to Michael Corleone was, was perfect because in any of these films where you have that transition from, we'll just say, innocent to, you know, crime lord, right? regretful yeah. crime lord, you have that vein of difficulty of what I'm doing right now is challenging me at my core in a way I didn't expect. That this thing that I'm going to do that's awful, violent, whatever, is somehow hard for me. And in order for me to be successful with this, like in order for me to achieve, I have to do a hard thing next Right. I have to I have to turn myself into a villain. It's why Breaking Bad is so extraordinary, because we have the good guy who turns into the bad guy over the course of five seasons. And it happens almost invisibly until you realize he took me on this journey that made it hard for me to recognize that I accept his badness now. 
from the moment that Tony Montana starts his journey, he is an exuberant killer. It's why I have the same sort of feeling to natural born killers. Like there's no transition. There's nothing that says for me, Tony Montana is having a hard time with anything that he's being asked to do. The hard time that he has is that he can't get enough. And that's not enough to sustain a three hour movie for me, an emotional connection with it. I think that's, I think that's what is so exhausting about this movie in spite of fun dialogue and everything else. One of the reasons I think this movie is so beloved is because it's so easy to quote and to quote in the accent like Pacino holds down the accent right he does he does pretty good (laughs) and it makes it fun and funny to talk about and quote and use those lines and it made Scarface uh, um, you know a a sort of cultural household icon I don't think think that that makes it a the great movie that it's often I think mistaken to be I can see why it is a great movie. Like, I think it is a great movie. I think there's a lot of greatness in it. It's just a hard movie, and it's one that I don't connect to um, as much as other people. But I think it's 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 crafted exceptionally. I think the story is really interesting. It's just, it, yeah, I just, I think personally is is the reason I just, I really struggle with this one. But um, but I don't fault it for, for anything. I mean, I think uh, it, it's an interesting rise in power and and yeah. to that end i feel like it it does excel at like you brought up earlier how ebert you know kind of looks at a film it does what they set out to do and they did a really exceptional job at doing that and of representing this dark dark world and I, so i find it effective it's just it's a hard one for me to really connect with and enjoy it's it's a hard one for me because I like a lot that's going on around the movie and and around Tony Montana. Even if by, you know, an hour and a half in, I'm kind of done with Tony Montana. I know yeah. his path is inevitable, not just oh, yeah. because I've seen the movie multiple times before, but because, you know, from the outset, this is a guy who's not going. This is not a redemption story. Right. It's going yeah, to right, end right. badly. And and because it everything about his arc is a foregone conclusion. And I've learned that there is no like there's no even micro redemption in him like there's no connection you know beyond lust with his you know Michelle Pfeiffer and his as his future wife like there that was just another experience of acquisition for him yeah. um i i really find myself more interested in the things going on around him in Michelle Pfeiffer and Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio in i mean i just i i think so many other people who show up in this movie are really great a, a couple points there. Just first, I do want to just bring a comparison to the original film because I found Paul Muni's connection to uh, Elvira in the original version. I found that there was actually more of a draw to each other. Like they actually found more of a connection. And I appreciated that in that original version. Whereas here, I always struggle. And I'm like, is she just, I mean, she clearly has a, a Coke habit. And I feel like She's she's living this lifestyle because it it offers her the opportunity to not have to deal with anything. The Coke that she wants, she can shop, she can do her hair. She doesn't have to deal with anything. I feel like that's the life that Elvira has fallen into, which is tragic that that she ends up here. Mm-hmm. Um, but she very willingly kind of goes from Frank to Tony. And I think that says a lot about her as a character. And I do think that in the original, there was a little more of a romantic draw to him. And he's a kind of a goofier character in the original. You know, he's, he's kind of played as kind of a, uh, not that bright, but still somebody with incredible amb- ambition. Um, 
interesting. You don't think that's you don't think that's how Pacino plays it in this character in this version? It it's different though. Like he seems like like Pacino feels like he's just it's hard to say what his intelligence level, his actual intelligence level is because he's he just plays like such a greedy person. It's hard to read that. Where in the original you watch that and it's like Forrest Gump. You know, oh, he's, okay. He's just yeah. not he's a very kind of a low intelligent. He's it seems like a thug who happens to have ambition and pushes to get to the top. Yeah. I, I think the only thing we know about Pacino in this character or or, or Tony in this character is that he's smarter than Manny, right? That that they have that great bus set up of the sanatorium uh versus sanitation yeah. line which which yeah, is right. which is funny in and of itself. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, the the relationship with the sister is still there in the original. I think that's um, uh, in both cases you're questioning his draw to his sister in ways like, hmm, what's going on with you? This is there's something peculiar here. Uh, but my last point that I wanted to bring up is I do think there is a moment in this film that is a moment, I guess I could say, of redemption for Tony that is essentially kind of his save the cat moment. It just comes so late in the movie that by that point you're like, huh, okay, so this is your line. And that's when he's riding with Sosa's man, the shadow, I believe mm-hmm. he's credited as, and they are doing this assassination in New York. And when they find out that this guy that they're assassinating is has his wife and two kids in the car, that is Tony's line. Tony refuses to to get close enough to so that the, the uh, Sosa's guy that can set the bomb off. And then kills the guy right there. And that was the line for Tony. And I was like, okay, that was actually really interesting and gratifying to see here's the line. Tony does have this line. And I do wonder, I'm like, I wonder if this film would have, you know, if, or if I would have found this film worked better for me, had that line been depicted earlier in the film. I think it would have. I really do. I think it would have. I think it would have allowed us to connect with Tony before he does that first assassination and makes it look so easy, right? Yeah. If right. there's any sense that he is having a challenge with this transformation, that's a hook. Yeah, that's a right. hook for those of us who for whom it would be hard. Yeah, right. So we have to do this thing because of X, Y, Z. Like the conditions have to be uh, higher. The stakes have to be higher than our current sort of morality level. And if if the movie can allow us to pivot the same way the character does, then we'll go on the ride. I think I think that's my hypothesis. And this movie doesn't do that. You just have to enjoy it for what it is. And yeah, I like I feel like I'm complaining about it. You'll see in my flick chart rating. I don't hate this movie either. Right. Yeah, like, right. Right. It's it. Yeah. It succeeds in what it does. So, OK. I, I want I have a point about the sister though because I feel okay. like I might be an island on that. I never I never read that Tony had a weird relationship with his sister beyond being hyper protective of her. I've read all of this critique about how it was really? this, like <laughs> sexualization, all of this stuff. And I was just like, no, he's a big brother who like cares about his little sister and he's going to do anything to protect her. And maybe that's, that's weird. But I just, I felt like even she at, in that final scene was like, do you want me, Tony? Like you, you won't let me have anything. I felt like she misunderstood <laughs> this whole thing with her like he doesn't play it as uh as as weird as i think other people see it so that that may mean uh that's the litmus test for me and i'm the weird one 
<laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I found it was pretty off-putting. I was like, this is, he's a little creepy the way he's, uh, you know, kind of so weirdly protective of, of some of the elements. Yeah. And, but I see, I see your point. He is a very protective big brother, but I think that there are some other things that are, I don't know. I feel like it's depicted in there. And I, well, I don't know. I, I mean, it, it could have been maybe that was sort of the save the cat angle is like save the sister from getting into this world that he's a part of. It's not clear. I think that maybe the the point that we're that that this the whole discussion is unveiling is it's not clear his relationship and his motivation for protecting her. It's not clear. I don't know why he is he is the way he is. And that's why I think it can be read, honestly, either way. Um and that the movie could have taken a, a stronger stance in protecting her from, you know, his business and being super overt about what it is he's protecting her from, if that's the case. It does not make that strong of a case. No, it's it's a little it is a little muddled, you know, and, and I think it's because when we meet them, they're both drawn to each other. Like she's drawn to him and his lifestyle and the money that he's giving her, you know, the you know, mom sees it right away and doesn't want him having to do with any, either of them. But she, you know, takes the thousand dollars and is happy to kind of have that extravagant lifestyle that he ends up providing. I mean, he opens a beauty shop for her, all this sort Mm -hmm. of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. In that, yeah, there's the, the taking care of sister montage that inspired Trey and and Matt in (laughs) team America world police and South park for the montage song. Um, so I, I mean, it's, it's, it's so serious. It inspired a musical. So that's big. That is big. Yeah. All right. Um, I, I would say, uh, I think Mary Elizabeth was fantastic and uh, as the sister and as weird as it was written, uh, I really enjoyed her relationship with Tony whenever we saw her. And I think, it, I think she's just, she's just super talented. I think she's great. Who played Cuban better, <laughs> Al Pacino or or uh, Master Antonio? That's really that's really hard because you know they're both they're just I, I don't know I don't know how and I feel Robert, about this. Robert Loja is also uh, I don't know what uh, I mean he's obviously Latino of some sort uh, as Frank Lopez he's another one I'm like gosh and he really, F Murray Abraham was might F. have been Murray the one Abraham. I rolled my eyes at the most <laughs> oh god the, here's the thing I think maybe they all did fine fine and I say fine in heavy air quotes knowing that they would never have gotten away with this casting today like no, never no. in a million years they would not be able to cast uh, a, a whole slate of Italians as like full-fledged heavy heavy accent Cubans like it's just weird it's weird to me. Now, I know so much of this was driven by Pacino, who saw the original Scarface and was like, I'm, I want to do this story and started yeah, right, right. like he was going to be that guy. Um, but, uh, it's, oh man, it, it's yeah. tough to stomach as much as I'm going through here thinking, okay, you know, for, for, for playing Cuban, they're doing a pretty good job. It still made me think about there are just a, so many great Cuban performers who should be and Stephen <laughs> Bauer. Good for him that he's actually Cuban. He's you hear yeah. him talk about it in the the thirty five year they did a a, a panel uh, that's widely available and he says yeah I was the Cuban <laughs> in the main cast right like that was it and um, it's I, I think one of the fine. other like Chichi might have been Cuban American. Yeah, uh, I, well, I think there, there was lot, one other. Uh, I think yeah. there were a lot more Cubans in the extended cast, right? Um, 
Yeah. But yeah, yeah. yeah it's it's rough. Well, and I guess I guess that is one of the uh, we should, you know, bring up this whole problem. I mean, there is quite an issue with this film as far as the stereotypes that it depicts and, you know, people's problems that you have non-Cubans playing Cubans, you have the these these roles portrayed with such, you know, as, as uh, you know, somebody wrote one of the critics, a ridiculous, you know, ridiculous accents and overacting. And I mean, they were so concerned about this film and its depiction of, of Miami that they actually weren't able to continue shooting in, in the area after yeah. a while because people were so worried about it. But, you know, it, I mean, well, they, they thought it was depicting- a Castro film. They thought it was a Castro financed yeah propaganda right. film right yeah but but i mean you know and and oliver stone talks about you know you had all these um these uh refugees coming over on boats like there were i think about 125,000 refugees that came in on this boat lift from cuba escaping castro and his people that you know were trying to escape because they were quote political um you know they were seeking political asylum and you know according to a report at the time there i, I there were 16 to 20,000 of the 125,000 that were criminals or undesirables that were coming over here now later some people said that it was actually closer to only 2700 but i mean there were a lot of cubans that were put in jail on a daily basis like 350 to 400 people back in the mid 80s so and, and you know oliver stone he addressed this he says Well, Tony Montana was a gangster. His mother and his sister, they represent the clean-cut Cuban community. His mother scolds him, you're a scumbag. Get out of my house, you're ruining your sister. So there is still a strong morality in the movie. I knew about the criticisms even in advance that Cubans were not like that. But I'm sorry, a lot of Cubans did become Marielitos. If I had done it about Colombians, they would have said the same thing. You're anti-Colombian. So I, it's it's a tricky thing because when you are depicting a particular certain group of people and the criminal element that it ends up reinforcing the stereotype, even if it is strictly depicting those particular ones. Yeah, I can I can totally see that. And uh, that that makes these just generally challenging stories to tell. I get it. Um but I, I also think that the movie has, uh, you know, has done a fine job outlasting those complaints. I do, too. I do, too. I mean, I, it's it's tricky because, yeah, I think it was one of those lines that was a lot more challenging for people to look at at the time because you didn't want to just flat out say all these Cubans in Florida, all these people coming over who need help. They're all just criminals. Right. It, weirdly, it feels timely <laughs> with yeah. with the certain uh, kind of political climate today, and and people you know trying to um, make better lives for themselves, for trying to um, seek political asylum, and being rejected because the political uh, powers say you know everybody who's coming from there they're all just criminals, and it's weirdly an echo that we're we've been hearing in the last. Uh, few years well it really is but you know what's most frustrating about that whole line of inquiry is you know who else is you know is a criminal element that is depicted in films a lot of americans right i mean <laughs> right. <laughs> come on like we we all have a we're human beings human beings have a criminal element and um yeah. so I, it's fine 
we're fine. Yeah, you end up hitting, or exactly, you hit a line. And I, I think, you know, to Stone's point, yeah, if if you did it about a different group of people, you'd say you're anti those people. Yeah. And inevitably, you, you hit this point where it's like everybody has that criminal element. Ironically, a lot of people say Oliver Stone is anti-American, given all of his critique, right? <laughs> yeah, like, right. Yeah. I guess the, the, the argument is always... Sure, there are a lot of films that are made about Americans who are criminals, but there are also a lot of films made about Americans who aren't. Where are the films about the good Cubans? And that ends up becoming the counterpoint yes. to that argument. And, and, and there is, is certainly fair. something to be said for that. Yeah. Yep, absolutely fair. Okay. Um, Do you want to talk about guns? Oh, Andy, guns. <laughs> it's back, baby. The Internet Movie Firearms Database is back with Scarface and and we've talked about movies with guns in them since the last time we talked about it but no place has it been such an exuberant search for guns as this movie uh and I would I just really I mean there are a lot of Berettas and Colts and throughout the movie it's just a lot because at the end of the movie it's all the guns all of the guns are there but I did want to point out the little friend uh when mm -hmm. he says say hello to my little friend that is the Colt AR-15 with a fake M203 grenade launcher uh strapped to it and um that is uh, used in such films as uh, Predator and Heartbreak Ridge. In fact, this this exact same grenade launcher was the grenade launcher that was used in Predator. Uh, so we have hmm. a little bit of a, a these are these movies are kissing cousins. Are they in the same cinematic universe? They might be, Andy. <laughs> the Scarface Predator cinematic universe, which means actually Scarface is in the Alien universe. Think about that. That's right. Wow. What a crossover <laughs> we've just created here. Tony Montana, we need you to get aboard the Nostromo and change some things for us. I need you to take charge. We've got an opportunity. In so deep space. Funny. So now, my understanding is that this grenade launcher was it was actually custom made just for the movie and to put on it. Um, but they actually, it was I think a few years later that it was the Cobra CM two hundred three flare launcher. I don't know that they were modeling it after. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I and I don't I don't know what any of those these words mean. They're all just numbers and either. letters. Yeah. Um, but uh, it is cool. The the cooler thing there is a cooler thing I think about the way they had to shoot these guns. And that is that uh, uh, the muzzle flash was so many bullets, they wanted to make sure that the muzzle, muzzle flashes were actually captured on film. And yeah. as they're shooting very, very quickly, um, the shutter is, of course, it's going to cut off muzzle flashes and you'll get that weird wavy kind of light bouncing thing. Uh, and so Ken Pepio and the, the camera crew and the effects crew worked together to develop this system that actually synced the fire, the trigger with the gun with the camera so that the gun would only fire at appropriate intervals to line up with the actual frame rate on the camera, which I think is fantastic and ingenious. And uh, and apparently it really pissed off Pacino because when he's in full character and he wants to pull the trigger and shoot the gun, he would have to wait for it to sync up with the camera and then it would start firing. And uh, that delay apparently was obnoxious for him. I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> uh, it's funny stories like that. There's it, it, 
that's what's so interesting about film is the line between an actor and their performance, which yeah. is very different when it's on stage because you're just performing. Right. But then you're also dealing with the tech and the timing of things and the placement of the camera and all these things that you still also have to be aware of. Yeah. Yeah. And some actors have a harder time dealing with the tech side of things, knowing that I have to be in this exact spot, looking exactly this way, and I have to have the gun right here. And all this stuff has to line up in order for all of this to play out while I'm still in my head trying to get this character to come totally. out. Totally. What my favorite story, Pacino story that I ran across was that he shut down principal production for two weeks because during the sequence, he's shooting this gun and it's real muzzle flare coming out, right? These, it's hot. Right. Because it's blanks, the, the blanks. Right? So the yeah. gun gets very, very hot, and he's he's in that frame where he's totally coked up, Tony, and he is shooting a lot of rounds, and then he gets shot and falls back, and as he's getting up, he reaches over and fully, like, full palm grabs the muzzle of the rifle that he's just been shooting, and the way he says, my hand immediately melted to the muzzle of the gun. And it, once we peeled it off, uh, I was taken. Now, Tony Montana character covered in blood and squibs that have been firing off of his body is going into the hospital to the burn ward in Los Angeles with his hand above his head, uh, trying to get treatment. And they, they had to shut down, uh, shooting for two weeks, um, for him. So, uh, the way De Palma tells it, they had a lot of time to shoot the Cuban, uh, uh, drug soldiers storming the, the castle. Um, yeah. and so that was pretty good, pretty good sequence. Yeesh. And Spielberg shot one shot. Do you, do you know what shot? I, you know, I read about it and then I already have forgotten what it was, but why don't you tell there is a shot. Well, there were four cameras on the final, uh, sequence, right? And so, mm-hmm. and, and De Palma and Spielberg are good friends and Spielberg was on set and said, Hey, you know, we should put a, camera here and as the apparently as the the cuban war soldiers are the drug soldiers are storming the thing there's this long shot of this long stairwell um that is where they come over the walls and come up the stairs i have heard reports that that's the shot but then to hear spielberg talk about it he says it was one of the mirror shots which is there are a ton of mirrors everywhere in this movie and so it it may be one of those but De De palma and and spielberg have a different memory of of which shot that was but it was one of the cameras in the in the final big sequence i think that's fun you gotta have friends that's very cool. That's very cool. It's funny, but you hear stories about this, and I, I feel like I always hear <laughs> I always hear other filmmakers talking about how Spielberg came to their set and shot a particular shot. You never hear like those George people Lucas. saying that, that. Like, what did, is he Spielberg what did, let them what do shot anything? Of Schindler's List did they do? You know, it's like I, I feel like he's always going because, like, it was. Um, I my recollection is the whole scene in Star Wars Episode Three. When uh, it's the final confrontation between Anakin and Obi Wan, oh yeah, right, 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 on, on the, the lava planet, right, it, not on, but in the room before they go out yeah. and have their lava thing. It's the actual yelling at each other in the little control yeah. room. I hear that that Lucas had Spielberg come in to direct that because there was you know so much character emoting he wanted. I guess you could say a real director to come in. <laughs> One of these days, Spielberg's going to have to make a movie where he makes good on all of that, and it just won't even be directed by him anymore. It'll be directed by right. all of the other directors who've had him. Right. Do- they, Maybe that was command. Ready Player One, actually. 
Maybe we already saw it. <laughs> Maybe that's what that was. Okay. I do think, uh, just going back to kind of the origin of this, I think it's interesting, as you said, Pacino was, he was the one who really wanted to do this. He saw that 1932 version, talked to uh, his producing partner, uh, Marty Bregman, and they started developing it. They brought Sidney Lumet on, who Pacino had worked with a number of times, to direct the film. And Lumet actually worked with, uh, they brought Oliver Stone on to write it. And uh it sounds like Lumet came up with the idea of really kind of connecting it to today's Miami and, or the Miami of the, of the day. And, and he and Stone really clicked on that. And the two of them really kind of dove in hard and, and did that. And it really worked very well, but, uh, and kind of modernized that whole idea of the, of the gangster and everything. Um, but, and, and that's, Lumet's involvement is what really kind of why Stone wanted to be involved. And once De Palma came on, and, and it, I can't remember the whole story, but Lumet and De Palma were each on, Lumet was on this and De Palma was on a different project. And then they basically ended up swapping projects, which I thought was kind of funny. But Lumet or, or De Palma, it sounds like Stone really didn't like, well, Lumet didn't end up liking the script. Um, and uh, and didn't get it. And so that's why uh, they went with uh, De Palma and Lumet left for his other project. But De Palma had, I mean, I, I don't think his pace was right. I think he was really into the color and the brightness and all of this sort of stuff. And, and Stone just, I, I don't think he ended up feeling as connected to the film once De Palma came on board. Yeah. It's interesting. I, what's your what's your stance on De Palma and this movie? I mean, when you talk about direction, well, there are no uh, no split screens. We don't have any of that going on, which is certainly something he loves to play around with. Yeah, but I I feel it is a very De Palma feel, film. Like the the color, the style, the camera movement, the way that he uh, just kind of takes on everything. I just felt it 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 had a. De Palma vibe, and uh, especially at that particular time in his career, I thought it it definitely fit. And so, I don't know. I I actually like what he brought to the to the film. I I think you're right. I think I I ultimately do too. I have trouble because I'm in this phase right now personally where I'm just sick of neon and pastels. I'm just sick of it. I'm sick of the, it feels like, I know this movie was of the period, but, um, the, the Marauder music, I couldn't stand it. I couldn't stand the, the tone that it set for this particular crime story. And, uh, and so I found myself, I, that might be part of what was so exhausting about the movie is just living in 1982, 83, you know, for three hours. Um, it's not raising Cain, which, as you know, I have issues with uh, in terms of the De Palma <laughs> think, catalog. And I think De Palma. I think we both do. Yeah, right. I mean, it, it's right. But it's also not Casualties of War, which, uh, you know, I think is is on the other end of my experience with De Palma. And so it's one of these movies where I, yeah, I mean, it's it it's better than Bonfire of the Manities, <laughs> right? So I, I think that's. I think that's where I might where I might land. What I would say about De Palma is even when I don't like his films, 
I find him an incredibly compelling filmmaker. Yes. Like he's always yes. doing something interesting and because there are plenty of the, of his films that I just absolutely do not like, but I love what he's doing. He's bringing something unique cinematic to his stories. And he certainly is doing that. Here. Well, and I think that that shower scene is a great example of that. I mean, talk about an yeah. extraordinarily violent sequence that, doesn't show any of the violence at all, right? It's all triggered by imagination. We don't see any of the, in fact, they didn't even use the prop like sawed off arms and legs. They just used sound to evoke this horrific, uh, experience of torture and dismemberment. And it worked. It really, really worked. And that's all De Palma. And, and, and I think, you know, him, the way he used the camera and cranes to, to go sort of, you know, the, the sort of poor man's transition through the windows to go out and see what's going on in the car, to crane down in the car and see Manny doing oh. his thing and then to crane back up into the bathroom again and see what's, what new horrors have, uh, with the great sound design it, between yes, the two. Yes. It's just great. And so that's, I mean, that sequence, there are these sequences in this movie that, that are incredible highlights to De Palma's filmmaking. Uh, the final shot where the assassin shoots Tony and he falls the, and they have the stuntman fall through the rail and land in the water. I mean, that is a deceptively challenging stunt to, you know, be shot and then have to hold your breath face down in the tank while he does a slow crane tilt up yeah. is a great, just exceptional composition. Like, talk about being invested in that scene. I think th these things are, are great, De Palma. And the movie still illustrates challenges I have, you know, maintaining that my interest in the story between these incredible beats. Right. It's the it's the slow stuff between between these uh, experiences that are challenging. I hate the club. Get me out of that club. God. <laughs> you know, I, I, I guess I didn't, that didn't bug me so much this time. You know, it's going back to what you were talking about, about all the violence, though. I, I think that is something that De Palma really does and has frequently pushed in his films mm -hmm. is the levels of violence, the levels of sexuality like that. Those are things that if you look through his career, he's definitely um, worked on, on always kind of pushing the edges. And what I found funny about reading the stories about the rating is, you know, this was rated X when it first went through the MPAA and he, he was expecting that he made a, a little cut, he said, and then it went back to the MPAA. They still made it X and he went back and made another cut. And the third time they still made it X. And that's when he brought the people in and they, they, they petitioned, or I don't know what the, they, they, you know, had a hearing at the MPAA about the rating with these different experts who said, this is how it really is. And so the MPAA granted them, okay, then we'll give you this, this version of the R. And then what's funny is when, when De Palma went to uh, finish the film and deliver to the studio, he actually gave them the very first version that he gave to the MPAA. And because he said no one else knew which version was which. So he gave that, that, that to them. That original version is the one that they released. And he didn't tell anybody about this switch until it was out on home video afterward. Always tell the truth, Andy, <laughs> even when you're lying. Have we learned nothing from is. this movie? <laughs> uh, I think that's really great. And it, to that point, I mean, I don't know about you growing up, but this movie defined uh, it, it, the the experience of me wanting to see a movie that my parents would not let me see because it was too violent. Right? I, this this was it. Interesting. Like, I wanted my dad saw this movie, and I was so supremely jealous 
uh, of of the fact that he he saw this movie without me. And he was like, "You're never going to see this. What are you kidding me? You're never going to see this movie <laughs> ever." And and uh, uh, and now it seems kind of, you know, things change. Cultures change. Thanks. Yes, I did not yes. watch this with my kids, uh, although they no. they may have walked in and around while it was happening. I didn't hide it from them, but they didn't. They weren't interested. Yeah. yeah. This was yeah. This was not a film that um, my parents were interested in. I, I can almost guarantee my parents haven't seen this film. Uh, if it is, I would be surprised that they would mm-hmm. have seen this film. It was never even on my radar. Honestly, I don't. Other than the images. You know, I, I feel like it probably wasn't until high school and maybe college when the images of Scarface became something that was very iconic. Like you started seeing just like I know in college for sure, you'd go to those little poster, you know, the campus poster tour where they'd come by like yeah. twice a year selling movie po- or just posters. And there would always be a poster of Pacino with the machine gun with say hello to my little friend written on yep. it. And that was on countless dorm room walls, I guarantee yeah. because it was something that people really connected with. And, um, and so it wasn't until much later in my life that I started even becoming aware of this movie. And so it was not something that I really sought out. It was just more by that point, a curiosity because by then I probably knew who, Brian De Palma, Al Pacino, the people involved were. Uh, do you remember, do you have any sort of memory of your first time watching this movie and what you felt about I it? I don't. I feel like it probably was in college and I probably rented it on Laserdisc. Probably yeah, I'm sure. I watched this thing. Yeah. I, I don't. But I don't, I don't remember my, my initial response. To I it. don't either. And it, it kind of bugs me that I wasn't like writing up little reviews in letterbox back then because, uh, yeah. I, I feel like it would be interesting to go back and watch how the flavor has changed. Like I, I have a feeling I was a guy who really loved it and loved quoting it, but now I've seen it several times over the years and I, I've just, I guess I've just lost, it's lost its shine. It's no longer one of those, one of those films for me. Uh, anybody else you want to talk about uh, highlight as we bust toward the end here? You know, I just, I, I just again want to say Michelle Pfeiffer. You know, uh, it was, it was not this film that made me fall in love with her when I was uh, younger, but um, certainly she's of that era where it's just so easy. Even though, you know, she's a, a, a difficult character because she's such a kind of a depressed character in this film, but. Um, She's just so easy to fall in love with. She tells the story of her audition for this because she, she her pre- previous credit to this was Grease 2. And so apparently her audition, she didn't uh, – Pacino did not want her in this movie. And there were a bunch of other talented actors for the character. But uh, when she came back uh, for a screen test with Pacino, uh, they did the dinner scene where she just loses it and starts throwing stuff. And apparently she threw a bunch of dishes and, and by the end of the scene, she's just covered in – in blood like there's blood on her and the crew comes over and they're looking at her and they're trying to find the cuts and it turns out uh, she'd thrown a dish at Pacino and cut him fairly seriously and it was his blood that was now everywhere <laughs> and oh, and that's how she got the part she says that that she she was brave enough at at 22 I think she said she was she was she was very young and uh, she was able to hold her own hold her own with Al and some dishes amazing awesome the last cast uh, I, I mean robert loja he's always fantastic yeah. but the last real one that i wanted to point out was during the opening immigration interrogation that that he's undergoing i kept hearing i'm like why do i recognize the voice yeah. of who's talking i'm like is that charles durning 
And then I saw the guy. I'm like, that's not Charles Durning. And I'm like, did they dub this guy with Charles Durning's voice? And sure enough, they did. <laughs> I don't know why, other than, you know, Charles Durning is one dubbed voice. Dennis France is another. Uh, it, you know, they're they're dubbed in, in this film just in that opening interrogation scene at the immigration uh, – at the INS – I have no idea why, but how weird is that? I totally that picked Charles Durning, but Dennis Franz, you're right. I had no, that's the one that blows me away. Dennis Franz is an uncredited voiceover in that sequence. I knew it, but I didn't know it. Ah, Yeah, so funny. Wow, that's fantastic. Okay, John Alonzo on camera. He was, I, I think he was great. Of course, working with De Palma, who's an opinionated uh, camera and editor himself. Um, so uh, I think it was great. And uh, we've already talked about how fantastic the camera movement mm-hmm. was throughout. Just it, everything felt really alive and incredibly colorful. And I, the way that they captured everything through this film, I just think was, uh, was very special. And I think Alonzo is, is one of those DPs who just works well capturing that life. I mean, he's, you know, he worked with so many great films with so many amazing filmmakers that I, I, although I don't think he worked with De Palma again, I think this was the only time they worked together, but I just, I, I think that he's an incredible eye with what he was capturing. He says, he says Pacino asked him to only speak Spanish during, during the production. Yeah. Even though he doesn't speak, that. Pacino doesn't speak Spanish. He just wanted to make sure you heard it. I think that's really funny. I would love somebody yep, to yeah. just yell at me in another language all day. That would be great. I can arrange that. <laughs> okay. Uh, I already <laughs> talked about the music. Giorgio Moroder was, uh, you know, I think he's a composer of the time. Yep. Uh, I, I enjoy the work that he did in some of these, films back then um i i don't know i i have a hard time connecting with it much uh as well you know but certainly very popular in a lot of movies around this movies this period and i mean obviously midnight express he had done that was another thing that stone had written a few years uh before like five years earlier i don't think he's still doing anything but i think as late as 10 years ago or something he became a dj like a, mm, like interesting. A, he's still he he's very active, but I mean Top Gun and Over the Top and Flashdance. Like he's talk about of the era. The eighties were his. Yeah, it's funny because you look at the filmography on IMDb and it's very hard to discern because so many films. Like it looks like he's working all the way up through like now, but it's because so many of the pieces that he's like written and songs have been in- integrated yeah. into these other projects. So yeah. it's kind of hard to, hard to tell. Yeah. You know? The last quote that I had where he was, he was working was, was when he was 73, which he was born in 1940. So what's that? 2013. And that's when he was, he's 80. He, oh, he's 80. Yeah. So 2003. So he was in the clubs, yeah. in the clubs doing the DJ mm-hmm. circuit. Fantastic awesome. guy. I just didn't have a taste for it. What do we have? You you have some uh, you have facts and tidbits. Facts and tidbits and sequels and all that stuff. Um, just a few quick things. This was I thought it was nice to see that Brian De Palma did actually have a dedication in the end of this film to the writer uh, Ben Hecht of the original and Howard Hawks who directed the original. I thought that was great. Also, I think it's just important to note this film really kind of came out when hip hop was really starting and the growth or like this influence has really shown through hip hop music. Uh, since its origins, quotes, uh, you know, lines 
uh, themes, a lot of stuff has come through in hip, in hip hop kind of really since, um, I just, I feel like it's always kind of been there, which I think is pretty interesting. Is it, is it really fits um, your catalog too? Your kind of, oh, your absolutely. kind of music. Always. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sequels. Just, uh, yeah, a few things. There was a sequel that they were planning, um, the hip hop artist again, Cuban link. He was writing and starring in the sequel and it was called, it was, uh, called son of Tony. This was back in 2001. And, uh, it, you know, for a while this was being played around with. And finally, um, because of movie rights and issues and stuff like that, creative control, the whole thing fell apart. Then 2011, so 10 years afterward, Universal said that they are actually developing a new version. It was neither a sequel nor a remake, just a new version, similar to what this version did to the 1932 version. This was going to be another story of a man who becomes a kingpin in his quest for the American dream. Um, And I believe they were going to be using um, a Mexican immigrant coming over and doing it that way. Initially, David Ayer was writing it with David Yates uh, talking about directing it. Then Pablo Larraín, who we've uh, had on, uh, talked about on the show, he was going to direct it. Paul Atanasio was writing the script. Then it was Antoine Fuqua who was going to direct it, and Terrence Winter writing the script, and Diego Luna was going to be playing the lead, and then the Coen brothers were writing the script. And um, Fuqua left, and then Gareth uh, Dunnett Alcacer was writing the script. And now they're back to a place where they haven't quite figured out what's going on with it. But uh, Luca Guadagnino is signed on to direct, it, to direct it, and it's back to that Coen brothers as the screenwriters for it. And this was as of May 2020. So it's all over the place. People definitely want to tell this story again in through modern eyes. So I'm curious to see what uh, will happen with it. I think that's about right. I can, I can see that it's, you know, 40, 50 years later, and now we're able to, to look at the, the movie through the modern lens. I think that would be, I'd, I'd catch that movie. There was, there was some commentary about would this work with a female protagonist? And I think the general consensus was no, nobody would buy that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like quite like Queen Latifah is the equalizer. We'll see how that works in the new series. Um, I, but uh, I think that that actually may work better as a as a do gooder uh, and not as an evil doer uh, in Tony Montana. Interesting, Antonio, Antonia, Antonia Montana, Antonia. Yeah. yeah. In addition to those, there's I mean, comic books. You know, Dark Horse had their Scarface the beginning. IDW had Scarface Scarred for Life. Um, which is, it starts with corrupt police officers finding that Tony survived the mansion shootdown, and then he works at rebuilding his empire. And, of course, there's the video games. One, this was big inspiration for Grand Theft Auto Vice City, which very much features that kind of whole Scarface world, including the mon- the mansion. And then there was the 2006, uh, the games, Scarface, the world is yours, and Scarface, money, power, respect. And just to show how... Much people are drawn to this story. Um, you know, in 1992, there was a, a wrestler, Razor Ramon, who was kind of patterned after uh, both Tony and Manny. He was this shady Cuban American bully who was from Miami, and uh, so uh, and that's just. I mean, it's still as prevalent in 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 uh, culture. 
How'd it do in award season? Uh, you know, not very well. It had zero wins, but it did have eight nominations, a few of them over the Golden Globes. Al Pacino was nominated for Best Performance in an, as an actor, but lost. It was a tie between Robert Duvall in Tender Mercies and Tom Courtenay in The Dresser. And Stephen Bowers nominated for Supporting Actor, but lost to Jack Nicholson in Terms of Endearment. And I think it speaks to the time again. Uh, Giorgio Moroder lost original score, but he won because he also did the music to Flashdance. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, at the All Deaf Movie Awards in 2016, this was nominated for Most Quoted Movie, but lost to Friday. I can see that. And at the, yeah, yeah. And the Motion Picture Sound Editor's Golden Reel Award, uh, nominated for Best Sound Editing Sound Effects, but lost to Never Cry Wolf. And last but not least, Brian De Palma was nominated for Worst Director at the Razzies, but lost to Peter Sazdy for The Lonely Guy. Yeah, I hate those Razzies. <laughs> yeah, I know. The worst awards for the awards system is the Razzies. They're nominated. It's, yeah. Yeah. All right. How to do at the box office? De Palma's gangster movie cost $25 million to make, which is $64.2 million in today's dollars. The movie opened December 9th, 1983, opposite Carpenter's Christine, Eastwood's Sudden Impact, James L. Brooks's Terms of Endearment, and Streisand's Yentl. Big weekend. Scarface opened in spot two behind Sudden Impact, and while it never made it to number two, it did stay in the top ten for nine weeks. The movie went on to earn $45.4 million domestically and $20.5 million internationally for a total adjusted gross of $169.3 million. That gives it an adjusted profit per finished minute of $618,000, but that profit says nothing of the crazy following the film has garnered over the years. I'm, I'm glad we have the film on the list now. I'm glad that we got to it by way of Oliver Stone. I think it is, you know, now we're getting into some Oliver Stone that that feels like Oliver Stone to me. And and I think that that it'll be it, it, we're in that that kind of interesting part of the run of Oliver Stone films. So I'm I'm excited to see what comes next. But for now, we should uh, rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see all the movies we've talked about on this very show. If you swipe over in your show notes and tap the word flick chart, you'll go straight to this movie in the flick chart database where you can add it to your list and see how it stands up to ours. All right. First up, we have Scarface or the Birdcage. Huh. I'm the birdcage. Yeah, I think I am too. That's a that's a heck of a block, the birdcage. It can be. Yeah. Can be. Scarface or stripes? Uh well, stripes. Uh, see, I'd I'd put Scarface up because I just think it's a better film. Yeah, yeah. I'm not gonna fight you over it. I don't even want to take it to the map, but I've said my piece. Okay. Scarface or the Magnificent Seven? Magnificent Seven. Magnificent. Oh, I should say the 1960 version. Yeah. Uh, 1960 version of Magnificent Seven for me as well. Scarface or Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist? Nick and Nora. Nick and Nora. Scarface or Compulsion? Oh. Compulsion. Compulsion. That's a great one. Scarface or The Brood? Some Cronenberg. The Brood. I will take The Brood as well. Scarface or Foul Play? Um, Foul Play. Yeah, I'll say foul play. Scarface or the lonely guy. Hmm. I could go either way. I'm tempted to say the lonely guy, but I could probably. Uh, you know, I'm too when I think of uh, Charles Grodin, but there were yeah. some other things about this yeah, film. I'm going to say Scarface. Yeah. Scarface it is. All right. Although Tony could be also called the lonely guy, Pete. He could. He totally could. <laughs> uh. Could we call Steve Martin in The Lonely Guy Scarface? I don't think he has a <laughs> scar on his face. I don't think he has face. a scar. We haven't even mentioned, though, that scar was awesome. 
the scar was, was awesome and subtle and yet gross, violent. Yeah, I feel like it diminishes over time. But Scarface or Piranha? Oh, uh, regretfully, Scarface. I'll say Piranha. You will? Oh, it's much more fun. Okay, I'll go with Piranha. All right. That was easy. But land Scarface, it's only one spot below Piranha, so you don't have to worry. Scarface landed in spot 367 on our chart out of 492 films. That puts it at a 25%. 25% is pretty low. Um, it is pretty low. I that it, it performed decidedly better on my own list um, for Flick Chart, although where it lands for Letterboxd, I don't know. How'd it do for you? On a flick chart, it landed in spot 2324 out of 4556, or about 49%. And I should say, this was the last time I watched it. Um, but I looked at that and I said, you know what? I don't think I need to re-rank that. I feel like it's okay. I did re-rank it, and it landed almost exactly the same place. It dropped by like three or four spots, weirdly. Yeah. Uh, and that is at 371 out of 1486, which is a 75%. Wow. And that is an example of where flick chart just sort of guides me down this primrose path about a movie and I get to the end and I see that the algorithm now says that I should give this a four star review over at letterbox.com slash the next reel. I don't think it's a four star movie for me. Uh, yeah. it's, it's a three star, if not two and a half, like it's right in the middle for me. Like, I think there are a lot of things we can celebrate about the movie and there's a lot of stuff that I just, I don't need to watch again. And, and I think yeah. that, that, parallels my experience of just sort of fatigue at watching the movie the the cinematic experience has degraded to the point where it might be a two and a half star movie i don't know where where are you feeling i i landed a three star uh film because i think it's incredibly like easy it's easy to watch in the fact that i enjoy seeing what brian de palma does cinematically in the way that he tells this story i think he really comes through and makes this uh interesting and compelling to watch. I just have a hard time watching the character. I just, have, I'm not drawn to this character and, and his lifestyle. And it's a very tough watch for me, but I give it three stars, no heart. I will not give it a heart. Uh, since it's going to land at three stars anyway, I'll go ahead and settle, settle on three stars too. Okay. There it's three stars, no heart. Yep. That, that feels all right. But, but where do we go from here, Andy? Where do you possibly go to follow up on Scarface? <laughs> Where indeed. We're going to be um, jumping forward to just to 1985, and it's Michael Cimino's film. This is still Oliver Stone writing, uh, and it is The Year of the Dragon. I have never seen this film. This is one that I feel like I probably heard of, but I'm, I'm, I, I just am not sure what to expect with it. Year of the Dragon, Michael Cimino should be interesting because this is what he did after... Uh, his uh, big Heaven's Gate debacle. Oh, the Heaven's Gate debacle. Yeah. You all remember that, right? <laughs> the Heaven's Gate debacle. <laughs> all right. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Letterboxd giveth, Andrew. As Letterboxd always doeth. I went straight to the bottom, and there are some good ones. 
<laughs> you went high, sure right? You are. go high or low? I, I went high just like Pacino. <laughs> this film. Let me tell you. I can see you sitting at a big gilded desk, a monogram that's designed with bones, snorting a giant pile of letterbox reviews. Oh. That's exactly what I'm doing, and I'm starting with Maria's five-star mm-hmm. review. It starts off uh, with this. Snorts Coke. As in, you know, in uh, asterisks. As in, I, I don't even know how you'd say that, that you're reading that. Action. Snorts Coke. <laughs> Not to be hyperbolic, but this is the best movie ever made, right? That's the end. That's yeah. But it's all it's all while snorting coke. Ending it on that is the definition of hyperbolic. Yeah. Yeah. No. That. Okay. I get it. Because you're. Yeah. I have go. a half star. You got it. You got that, it. You're there. Uh, from Ashley, who says, "Dude wanted to bang his sister. I can't vibe with this movie." There's nothing redeemable about Tony Montana that would make you want to root for him. See Tony Soprano or Michael Corleone for actual mob bosses you want to win because they show vulnerability and have purpose. This is just a violent movie with no substance until the last 20 minutes or so. The other two and a half hours are a collage of random violent scenes. Boring. And then there's a follow-up from Mel 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 who says, I want to fight someone in a parking lot right now. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it. There's, All right. Yeah. It's good stuff. Thanks, Letterboxd. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022... We switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15-plus years, Transistor has been, hands down, the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>